0: Hey, it's Lynn Galadner, and this is the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm founder of the Your People Marketing and PR Agency, and I lead the Make Meaning Movement, a platform that helps purpose-driven visionaries and leaders do business with meaning. On this podcast, you'll hear stories of how people dare to take chances to live the life they want with meaningful work and purposeful days. There are many ways to fill your life with meaning. Join us at makemeaning.org to learn more. Now, on to the show. Welcome back to the Make Meaning Podcast. Today, I am delighted to speak with the Honorable Jan Tenetti, a government minister from New Zealand, concerned by menstrual supply inequality issues that kept students from attending school. In 2020, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and Associate Education Minister Jan Tenetti launched a pilot program to offer free period products to 3,200 young people throughout their nation. The program was such a success that they announced that this year, they would expand the program nationwide to provide information about periods, period products, and other elements to help manage menstruation. Today, I am so honored to welcome the Honorable Jan Tinetti to the Make Meaning podcast to talk about how New Zealand is leading the world in period advocacy and educational equity. Minister Tinetti is a Labor Party member of Parliament based in Taranga, the fifth most populous city of New Zealand. She grew up rurally outside Christchurch and earned degrees in education. For more than 20 years before becoming a member of New Zealand's government, Tinetti taught primary school and was a school principal. She is a fierce advocate for equal educational opportunities. After seeing families struggle in her local community, she campaigned for New Zealand families to access everything they need to thrive. After a former student ended his own life, Jan Tinetti entered the political realm driven by a belief that government has a role to play in ensuring access to services that help people be their best and live good, healthy lives. Today, Jan Tinetti is Minister of Internal Affairs, Minister for Women, and Associate Minister of Education. Minister Jan Tenetti, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Minister Tinetti, thank you so much for joining me on the Make Meaning Podcast. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. And you are more than welcome. I'm very excited to be here. Well, it is quite an honor. I've been admiring New Zealand from afar for quite a while. And I was thrilled that I could speak with you about your access to period products uh, program. So I wanted to start with that and ask you a little bit about the pilot program that your government launched last year and learn a little bit about what inspired it and then how you're rolling it out as a nationwide effort. So tell me about that. Oh, thank you. I'm
1: really excited about this program and I'm excited to be leading the, the rollout of it. It started in 2020 as a response to start with to COVID uh, and it started in 15 schools, which is a small compared to what you have in the States, but it was a, a geographically designed area or defined area, I should say. And it was reason that we chose that particular area was that it gave us a number of different sorts of schools that we were looking at and we could see how this could roll out in each and every school with their different profiles Mm -hmm. and it was really successful. The feedback that we got from the young people involved in the schools was that this is a must and it's certainly something for me that I was really committed to because I've seen, well I've seen a disproportionate effect on young people's attendance just caused for periods. And this is a conversation that in 2021 we're still having 50% of our population have periods. We had not come up with any solutions around that. So it was a given that from the strong results that we actually got from this, that would we we would be looking at rolling it out further. And I was very fortunate that our cabinet, my cabinet colleagues here in government decided that this was a worthy Uh, project that we should be looking at and so just recently only about four weeks ago I was able to announce alongside the Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Jacinda Ardern, Mm -hmm. I was able to announce that we were rolling this out in June of this year to every school that opted into this program and so far we've had about a two-third take up but that's in a short space of time. We're thinking that we will get very close to all the schools signing up for this so that this will involve girls and young women who are in education having access to free period products. Wonderful.
0: And I know that information is part of this campaign as well. So is it also to educate and empower um, girls and, and women so that they they know what's going on
1: and then also provide them with the supplies that they need? To be fair, as an ex-educator, this is the part that I'm most excited about because I know that uh, resources to help teachers in this area have not been good, actually. In fact, I would say zero in the Mm. education area. Mm -hmm. And again, in my speech in the day that we rolled this out and made this announcement to, it was a secondary school who had been part of the pilot. And I said, this is what the girls told us the most. They told us that there needed to be education, but not just for the girls, that Hmm. there needed education for the boys. But I couldn't believe in the pilot that some of the feedback that we were getting was that girls and boys were still separated and being (laughs) talked about periods. And I thought, boys need to know this information too. (laughs) And actually, as I was saying that, the boys in the audience were there nodding to me uh, that absolutely they need to know about this. One of the things that the girls talked about was still a sense of shame. Mm -hmm. when they had their periods Mm -hmm. and that's what we need to overcome as I've already said we're in 2021 half of the population have periods this is not something to be ashamed of this is something that we need to openly be able to talk about taking into consideration cultural differences as well but then we need to talk about why those cultural differences exist and we need to have this open and honest conversation about it and we need to we need girls to be able to feel confident and like our indigenous population here maori they talk about periods as a as a life force because Mm. they're a life giver and it's such a beautiful way of looking at it that we need to be making sure that this is spread across all of our ethnic groups and and everyone we can be so Uh, narrow sometimes in our viewpoints Mm -hmm. but the other part of that is is that the teachers actually said to us we want to have the resources to be able to educate and to be able to have these conversations Mm -hmm. I actually didn't need for them to tell me that but I'm so pleased that they did because it's something that we will grow it's starting small this part Mm -hmm. of it we're getting this rollout starting but it is an area that I am leading in building the education capacity of our educators.
0: I love that. There's so much of what you just said that I think is beautiful, especially the idea of your period, your cycle as a life force, which of course it is. And we should be able to embrace that. But you're right. I remember when I was taught in school, um, the girls in one room, the boys in the other. And yes, it's so needed to talk about everybody's well being everybody's physical humanity and, and remove any shame and make sure there's dignity attached to it. So um, now I want to know what inspired this campaign in New Zealand? So what was the the kernel or the inspiration that, that got it off the
1: ground? So as I said, it was a result to start with of uh, some of the impacts from COVID and what was happening here, but it's not that it hasn't been talked about for a long time because mm-hmm. it has. And what we've been starting to notice for a number of years now, is that more and more girls were experiencing period poverty and the fallout of period poverty was actually not attending school. Mm. Again, I go back to my uh, time as an educator in that I had young people from five years to about 11 years in my last school. Mm -hmm. And actually, I had a growing number of young people who were as young as six getting their period for the first time wow you start to add up that they weren't coming to school for a whole week from every month from the time that they were six yeah it actually places a big barrier in front of them having a strong and quality education yeah and we actually were we're talking about this as a government and saying, what can we do about this? Well, let's take that barrier away. It's really important to us to look at the barriers and see what we can do to either minimize or actually take that barrier fully away. And this is where it started from. It started as a conversation. I have to um, do a shout-out here to my predecessor, the Honourable uh, Julianne Genta, who was Minister for Women, who did a lot of advocacy in this space. Uh, and she led a lot of those discussions. And then, of course, our wonderful Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Jacinda Dun, she actually, as part of her Prime Minister's Fund to begin with, put the initial funding up for the pilot. And this is why she wanted to be part of the uh, uh, announcement of the full rollout, because this has been really special to her. I have to say that when the young people saw her coming into the school that particular day, there was a great thank you to her for mm-hmm. what she had done to promote this programme. So it has been something that uh, that has been on the books. There is another reason too, though, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're close now to 50 percent of our parliamentarians are women. Okay. I think it's sitting just over 48 percent. And in the last parliament that was high as well. it's growing each parliament. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does bring a different focus on legislation. When you have diversity, it does bring a different focus on legislation. And women have been a big part of the conversations of breaking down those barriers. It's not necessarily something that men have focused on in the past, but now that we do have a large number of women who are in Parliament, those conversations are happening more about how we can take something that has been a barrier for girls and young women and, and just break it. I love it. And there's just so
0: much, you know, we're sitting over here in the United States, completely envious of so many things about New Zealand, especially during COVID. Um, And, you know, I said to my husband, as I was preparing for this podcast, you know, let's just pack up and move there. Not that you want us with all of our COVID nightmare over here, but honestly, it's so inspiring to have this fresh perspective on leadership and, and just understanding the humanity of your people. I know that this effort to eliminate period poverty and really increase equity um, in access to education is just one piece of what you're doing. I know that you have a lot of passion toward addressing poverty, increasing school attendance, and overall positively impacting children's well-being. So I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about some of the other initiatives that are happening now in New Zealand to reduce barriers to education for your students.
1: Yeah, we've got a number of projects that are on the go. We have uh, some of the ones that, that will you'll see right in the face are our Ka Ora Ka Ako, now that's Te Reo Māori, but basically that is a, a healthy lunch programme that we're rolling out to schools. I know that, uh, you know, there's other countries in the world that have had lunch programmes, but we're very much more of a universal approach to our uh, programmes in need, of need here in this country. And so what we're doing is rolling them out to whole schools. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we don't select separate children or different children within the school, we ensure that we are rolling out to whole schools. And at the currently at the moment, we're almost at 100,000. I think it was 88,000, but I think I, the latest figures I read was that we're almost at 100,000 young people. By the end of this year, we're working to get healthy lunches into 200,000, but that's built on what we've already done. We've partnered with over years, we've partnered with corporates to bring in free breakfasts to all schools, um, a milk program, a fruit in schools program. We have social workers in schools, we have counsellors in schools, and we're increasing that. So a big focus on that. But it's all stemmed and comes from the fact that we have a, a focus on young people. Our aim is to make New Zealand the best country in the world to be a child. Mm. And we have a minister for. Uh, child uh, reduction of child poverty Mm -hmm. just so happens that that minister happens to be our prime minister so we're very much focused on the fact that that just gives the importance of how important it is to us to lift children out of poverty Uh, we have a well-being budget so we unashamedly put well-being goals into our budget now mm. and we must report on those well-being goals every year and one of those is the reduction in child poverty is one of those goals that we are working towards we have or nine markers that we must actually report on in the child well-being and all of those are reducing mm. even um, even COVID may change that a wee bit but prior to that we are seeing that they are there's a big or art reduction is happening in that area. That's that's really exciting. It's about putting the people back at the centre of what we're doing. Sometimes in this country we don't, well, we don't. It's not sometimes. We don't ask or focus on the why or whose fault it is. We just know that there's an issue and, like, what are we going to do about it? I will say that that's probably come over time as well. It's It is part of our who we are as New Zealanders and it's part of who we are as a country. But we have that issue and so what can we do? And uh, it's about putting that back at the centre.
0: I love that. That's beautiful. Now I know that before you entered the government, you were an educator and um, you were also a, a school principal. So I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about your experiences as a teacher in the classroom as a school principal and how those experiences inform your government leadership today. So
1: I, I loved being a school teacher and I loved being a school principal and I tell anyone that's willing to listen about it that that's the best job I've ever had in the world and that I can't believe that there's a better job than working with young people because making a difference on a day-to-day uh, level is just absolutely amazing. And my last school that I was principal at for 11 years, I was principal at a school called Merivale in Tauranga and Merivale is from one of the lowest socioeconomic areas in New Zealand. We have what we call, currently we have what we call deciles and decile one to ten. And a decile one school are the young people that tend to come from the lowest socioeconomic areas and Merivale was a decile one school. Mm-hmm. And so we saw quite a number of issues that were related, uh, poverty issues that were related with being in that low socioeconomic area. Mm-hmm. and. We worked really hard as a school to overcome that and to put initiatives in place that would actually help young people in leading really amazing lives from our school. Mm -hmm. But I kind of got to the point where I knew that we were only changing things on a surface level. And if we wanted to make a real difference, then I had to actually be here in this place, uh, Mm -hmm. which is in government. And I reluctantly, very, very reluctantly, uh, when I was asked to stand uh, and said, yes, okay, I will stand for um, parliament and didn't think up for a moment that I would be elected in. And yeah, I did. (laughs) (laughs) And we're so so
0: glad that you were. Look at all
1: that you're doing. It's fantastic. (laughs) So I left this amazing job that I loved and came into parliament but I love it like I don't have any regrets because I am able to be part of a team that does put children right at the centre and focuses on children and their families and their well-being and that's really uh, important to me as you probably can tell yeah so so how does that inform what I do now it informs everything that I do those young people those families they live in my heart every single day and Every single decision that I'm making, I think back to how this is going to impact upon them. And every single time I can think of a young person who I know that this is going to make their lives better. So it's keeping that reality in check the whole time. I think it's really important as a politician that you also know who it is that you're making the big impact on and who the people are that you are actually able to make a positive difference in their lives. And for me, that's what the educa- my time as an educator is bringing. So I'm also Associate Minister for Education. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a really close relationship with the sector because I know when there are issues in the sector, I know that I've, or generally, I've actually experienced the same issues. Mm-hmm. And so, I can have those conversations and hopefully uh, over my time in this role, I can actually have a positive impact in the changes that we can see in that area as well.
0: Beautiful. So I know we've heard some of the programs that you're really proud of. I wonder if you could detail for me one or two other really proud or
1: impactful
0: moments that you've had since you joined parliament. So,
1: so you know, it's a, it's a strange place, Parliament. It's a really strange place because it's an environment that people don't actually understand until they come in and what you do. So they don't actually see the results of what you actually are able to achieve and what you're doing. But on a personal level, I uh, we have a system here in New Zealand that is members' bills they get drawn out of a ballot and you have a chance to change legislation and take legislation through the house. Hmm. And on a personal level, I was able to do that to ensure, uh, because one of mine got pulled out in the very first ballot of the last parliament. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I was able to um, take that through Mm -hmm. and change legislation. And what it essentially meant was that the educators of this country were guaranteed to have, say through consultation in our um, learning priorities that we set as a country that the minister mm-hmm. set as a country so that was a personal level but as a as a like part of the government that I've been really fortunate enough to be part of actually the proudest moments for me are how we have come through the pandemic of the last year mm-hmm. and, and as you rightly pointed out the great leadership that was shown but also I go back to the fact that once again, we showed our values by putting the people of this country front and centre of what we did. And we worked as a team relentlessly to make lives, to to minimise the impact uh, of the pandemic on the people of this country. It's still hard. So we're not not glossing over like you know the economic fallout for some people is going to be hard but it's a lot less than what it wouldn't have been would have been if we hadn't have put people at the centre and put a really strong health response first so that strong health response has informed a much stronger economic recovery than what we would have seen so I'm really 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 proud of the work that we have done. It's incredible. That's one of the
0: questions I did want to ask you as about your response to the pandemic, which has been noted on the world stage, you know, so we're sitting over here locked in our houses and wondering, you know, what's going to happen and everybody's so afraid and that's really the story around the world. And we get conflicting stories. And over here, we had just such turmoil and tumult. We didn't know whether we were paying attention to politics or to public health or to racial turmoil or all of the above. And so 2020 was a a disaster in the United States in a lot of ways. And we were watching countries like New Zealand and, you know, sort of enviously and wonderingly admiring um, such swift and inspirational leadership and I just wonder if you have thought at all about what message New Zealand's bold moves are sending to nations around the world. And of course, every circumstance is different, every population is different, um, and size matters too. How many, you know, popu- how many uh, populate the the country? But what message do you think is coming from New Zealand uh, around the world today um, in terms of these decisive actions and this leadership?
1: So I think there were some key things that came out right initially in in the response and in the communication of the response. One was the great communication that was actually shown from our leadership, not just the leadership of the Prime Minister, but the leadership of the Director General of Health as well. They stood united. They never contradicted each other. They backed each other the whole time. And from that day one, the New Zealand population could see that every decision was being made on scientific evidence and there was a really strong scientific approach to what we were communicating out to the people. Yeah. And I think that, that was that's a really strong message, is that you always stand on facts. So the Prime Minister always communicated facts to the people, but communicated it in a really empathetic way. So she You know, we can name every single person of our 22 people who have died from COVID. We as a country can name every single person and we mourned every single person. So the empathy was there right from the word go around what we were experiencing when the pandemic hit us in a major way. And the clear communication was just absolutely superb. And what that led to is that it led to uh, our team, And the Prime Minister talks very much about we're we're a country of just over 5 million people. She talks very clearly of our team of 5 million. And every Mm. single person feels the responsibility of being in that team because the communication was clear that it was to every single person in that team. And even today, you know, I'll get... Um, people that contact me that are saying oh you know I saw someone in the team that was letting the side down because they weren't scanning with their QR code because we have um, the contact tracing through the QR codes Mm -hmm. and and I said to them you know you're letting the team down and it made them go (laughs) and do the scanning so you know there's there's that responsibility to the team that Mm -hmm. uh, people feel very let down if they think that people have not Mm -hmm. Uh, done being part of the team so the communication was really clear and I think that's one message I think as I said the empathy Mm -hmm. just that that from the center there was a real empathy for absolutely every single person in this country and there still is that's still part of the response so so while as I said it's really hard it's not Mm -hmm. easy yeah um, still we still we've got many freedoms that I know that we possibly take a lot for granted. I look out my window and I can see lots of people just moving around as they normally would be moving mm-hmm. uh, and, and interacting as they normally would be moving because we're in a position because we've worked hard to get to that position. Yeah. But that doesn't mean to say that there's not a lot of people that haven't aren't feeling the, the full impacts of uh, an economic market shock that's yeah. really helped them. So it's not easy, but the empathy for those people is there. Yeah. And while... Well the response isn't going to be able to, to bring back every business, for example, we're trying as hard as we can and people generally know that as well. And people feel safe. That's the other thing. Safety of our people has always been paramount. And so people feel that sense that we are trying to keep them safe and they say that all the time. So I think those are the messages. You know, I don't think there's any difference to other things that I've talked about here. It's putting the people of the country back at the centre. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I got
0: chills when you said 22 people and that you knew every single name. I mean, I almost just started to well up with tears because that is such a powerful notion. And the number so small, and that's just well done. I mean, really well done. So I wish, I wish we could say the same. And one day when this is done, then we can come back and visit and we can admire all the hard work that New Zealand, you know, has put in when you will welcome us again. So that's probably far (laughs) in the future. I know. Um, I have two more questions before we finish. And one is I read a quote by you that I loved, um, which I wanted to read back to you and then ask you a question about it. And so you said, children are our future. It is up to all of us to make sure they feel loved and nurtured. So they have every opportunity to be the best they can be. And we've heard a lot of that already in this conversation. So I wondered what you think children really need to feel loved and nurtured. And then on the back of that, you know, what is the role of government versus the role of community or family in providing that for children?
1: Yeah, there's so much in that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Because I inherently love every single child. Like there is so much potential in every single child. And I sometimes hear... People say, oh, this child has these issues or this child has these issues. Actually, it's not the child. The child the child, is a product of what is around them. And every single one of us needs to work towards giving that child the love so that they can be the absolute best that they can be. Yeah. Um, on a personal level, never give up. It's building those relationships so that that young person knows that you're never, ever going to give up on them. So no matter what they do or what they face or what happens to them and their experiences they have, you are never, ever going to lose sight of who they are and you're always going to be there for them. And I still have ex-pupils uh, today who contact me and they're in their 30s now and they contact me and they will um, say exactly that. And they will say, you know, if they need support, they know that even now I'm still there. So I'm never, ever going to give up. My last school with those young people who did come from low socioeconomic areas, they know that they can contact me on anything Mm. and I will be there for them. So, So it's about always being present. And actually, you know what? I don't think there's much difference at a government level. It's about being present for our young people all the time. And that's why that child wellbeing strategy is yeah. so important because it's about actually everything that we do mm-hmm. must have that as our focus. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're never going to give up on the children of this country. Mm-hmm. So it's just taking it from that micro level and exactly yeah. what must happen for each and every individual to the macro level It's the same principle. I love that.
0: I talk a lot about how we in our country we used to have, uh, you know, a couple of generations ago there were multiple generations of family in the home. There were a sense of a neighborhood as an extended family, and that's changed a lot in recent years, and recent decades. And I think that makes parenting and raising children even harder because children need multiple things from multiple adults to support them. And so I do hope that at some point we can get back to that notion of, you know, it takes a community, it takes the the, the multitudes to come together to support each and every child's that they get what they need, where they need it. yeah. So on this show, um, it's called the make meaning podcast for a reason. And we like to focus on how people find meaning in work and purpose in life. And I always close by asking my guests what advice they might offer to listeners for finding their personal meaning and using that to guide them in their work. And I know from everything we've talked about that you have been so fortunate to find your personal meaning and really built several careers on that. Um, and I'm sure you've guided all of the students under your care in the same direction. But what advice might you offer our listeners um, as we depart today?
1: So, you know, I'm not going to use my own advice here because I can't say it any better than my one of my absolute heroines, Glennon Doyle. Ooh. And I use Glennon's work, her quote, often in what I'm doing in my work. And it's just simply this. How do I find my purpose? How do I find my people? Here's how to find both. Figure out what breaks your heart in the world and that's your purpose. Find the folks working to fix that thing in the world and join them. Those are your people.
0: Mm. I love that. That is just a perfect note to end our conversation. And I'm going to ponder that advice myself a bit. So um, Minister Tanetti, thank you so much for being on the Make Meaning podcast.
1: Oh, you are more than welcome. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galodner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here, join us over at makemeaning.org to discover how you can add more meaning to your life. And hey, if you like our conversations, please subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world.